You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Amen. Good to see you at 10 o'clock. Wow. Hope you had a great day yesterday. Hope it was more than you expected. Hope there was a lot of laughter and great gifts given and great gifts received. Uh, Hope it was a good time to be with your family and your friends. Or maybe there wasn't much laughter yesterday. Maybe you didn't get any good gifts or any gifts. Or worse than that, maybe you just got socks and underwear yesterday. Maybe no gifts is even better than that. Uh, maybe uh, it wasn't such a great time with, with family. Maybe there was not a whole lot of joy, a lot of food. Maybe there's a lot of dysfunction. I, I, I don't know, but there is one constant in true Christmas, and that's joy. So yesterday, if you had no happiness and no functional family around you, and it felt very lonely, there, there is a, a constant variable in Christmas, in true Christmas, and it's joy. Isaac Watts uh, wrote a song that I bet you sang at some point the last few weeks. Certainly you heard it played in, in malls. We sang it here Christmas Eve. The song that he wrote was Joy to the World. He wrote it 302 years ago. It is the most published Christmas hymn of all time. Where, where did he come up with this idea of joy to the world, the Lord has come? Well, it, was, it was inspired by, really founded in, grounded in Psalm chapter 98. And so today, as we wrap up this series of Christmas and the Psalms, I'd encourage you to take your copy of God's Word that I hope that you have with you today. Let's go to the 98th Psalm together, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. You can go there on your smartphone if you want to. And we're going to read through this, and we're going to go back and understand it together to see what God says to us. I'm assuming that's why you came to church today, not just to hear one more sermon or one more preacher guy, but to see what God says to you about himself, what God says to you about yourself, what God says to to you about life. And so let's begin in Psalm chapter 98. Begin here in verse 1. Uh, at the very top of, of verse 1, probably in your Bible, is has the, the two words there, a psalm, which means a song. So this was a song that was sung by, by God's people. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praise to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity, I encourage you not to close your Bible. Let me sum up this entire chapter with, with one sentence, but there's more than this, so don't get excited about just a four-minute sermon today, but here's the entire picture, if you will, of Psalm 98 in one sentence. The coming of Jesus as Savior, King, and Judge is cause for a great worldwide joy. 
certainly the 98th Psalm, as we will continue to see here in the next few moments, is a story of celebration of salvation himself, Christ Jesus, who would come. Let's go back in, in verse 1, 2, and 3. The psalmist was very kind to us and, and kind of designated a first stanza, stanza, a second stanza, or, or and a third stanza. Or if you grew up in church, this is a first verse, a second verse, and a third verse of this hymn right here. So let's go back and read the first verse. It's 98, 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Let's note three things right here in the first three verses. The first thing is this. God's sent salvation causes us to sing a new song. This salvation that, that God has sent to us, it causes us not just to sing, but to sing a new song. There's a word used in all three of these verses. The word is salvation. We see at the very end of verse 1, he has worked salvation for him. We see at the beginning of verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. We see it at the very end of verse 3, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So we can tell in the first verse that salvation is the key theme. And guess, oh guess, what the word salvation is in Hebrew in this passage. It is the word Yeshua. When the angel came to Mary at that Christmas season, the very first Christmas season, the angel said to Mary, you will name your son Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, now, the Greeks named that Jesus, and that's what we call him here in Waco as well. But the Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua. His very name means salvation. You can interchange it here in this very first verse of this song, Psalm chapter 98, verses 1, 2, and 3. You begin to see the salvation in Jesus. It is seen in the victory on his cross. It's ratified by his resurrection. And what does this salvation in Christ do? It causes us, verse 1, to sing. This is why we sing on Sundays. Maybe some of you have grown up in church all your life and you just kind of think, well, of course we, we sing. We come to church and we sing. You know how odd that is to our unsaved neighbors? You know how weird it is to an unchurched city that we come to church and sing songs together? I, again, we live in the South. We live in such a Christian culture that maybe a lot of us in this room would understand how odd it is to people that we come not just to hear a speaker, not just to hear a preacher, not just to hear God's word, but we come into a room and we sing together. Lost people look at us and go, wait a minute, you, you go to church and you sing? Do you rehearse? Oh yeah, all week long. In the car, in the shower, like we're, we're singing all week long. We can't wait to get back together and, and sing these songs that we've been singing privately to ourselves and to the Lord all week long. But when you sing a song, do you, do, do you sing it all in the same key? Oh no, no. We, we're, we're probably in about three or four different keys as, as we're singing. So really, the, the, the key isn't that important to us, is that we're, that we're singing together. Well, you must sing very quietly. I'm certain when you come to church, you sing quietly. No, we can't find any scripture about us singing quietly. We found about 60 that say we should sing loudly when we come together. So do you come to church and just kind of put your hands in your pocket and, oh no, 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 no. 
We, we want our hands out of our pockets just in case we need to lift them in obedience and, and in joy. We sing. Why, verse 1? Because he's done wondrous things. God has done wondrous things. If you're saved today, you're in Christ today, you're established in Christ, you're a Christian today, God has done wondrous things in your life. You were once dead in your sin, and now you're alive in Christ. If he hasn't done wondrous things for you, don't sing. If he has, sing, sing, sing. We sing a new song to the Lord because he has done these wonderful things. Here's the second thing we see from the first verse of this great song. God's mighty power was needed to deliver this salvation. Do you see this in verse 1? The second part of verse 1 is his right hand and his holy arm have worked. They have worked out salvation. They have exercised this salvation, this Yeshua, this Christ, this one who would come to save us for God's name. God exerted power. This is important for us to see. God exerted his power. He had to exercise his power for Jesus to be sent to be our salvation. In other words, God flexed. And if that sounds like a stretch, look on the screen in Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm. In other words, he pulled up his sleeve before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. God's mighty power, his mighty arm pulled up for us to see. He bared his holy arm that we might have this salvation delivered to us. Now this has two implications. For you people taking notes, these are the two subpoints. I only have nine points today. I might kill you on a few subpoints. Here are the two subpoints. Salvation then is not a matter of human effort, but of God's unmatched might. This salvation, this Yeshua, this one who would come, was not because of what we deserved, what we were able to do, but it was delivered by God's power, by God's right arm, by his holy arm, by his own strength. If salvation required God to pull up the sleeve and to flex his muscle, God does not need our small arms in salvation. God has delivered this salvation for us. He doesn't need us to help him. Remember what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1? When he prayed, I pray that the, the eyes of your heart might be opened, that they might be enlightened for you to see that which is the surpassing greatness of the power of God for all who believe. Since salvation then is a matter of God's mighty power and not human effort, here's good news. No sinner is beyond hope. Because it's God's power. Not what we accomplish, not our effort, not what we're able to do. Since salvation is a matter of God's mighty power, no sinner is, is beyond hope. You may think someone in your family is beyond hope. You may think a coworker of yours is beyond hope. You may think that a friend of yours is beyond hope. You may be here today and feel like you're beyond hope. No, God is mighty to save. God is mighty to save. His big arms go along with his big heart for you. The second implication of this is if God's power saved us, then his power will keep us. If he is powerful enough to save you and to give you new life, then he is powerful enough to, to keep you as well. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, I will not lose even one that the Father has given to me. The hand of Jesus will keep us forever. You've heard me say this from this pulpit many times. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that keeps you and the same grace that leads you home. 
Here's the third implication, if you will, the third point we can get from these first three verses. God brought Jesus to Israel, but Christ is for the entire world. Well, look, look at verse two, verse three again. The Lord has made known his salvation, his Yeshua. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Verse three, he has remembered his steadfast love. He has remembered his faithfulness to the house of Israel. But listen here, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. God's promise to Abraham was that out of the seed of Abraham, one would come that would bless all of the nations. Jesus is from the lineage, from the, from the seed of Abraham. He has come to bless even to the ends of, of the earth. The birth of Jesus demonstrated God's faithfulness to Israel so that the ends of the earth might see Jesus as the salvation of God. One of the stories I always forget about, maybe you don't, around Christmas time is that story of, of Simeon. Simeon, we find him in the book of Luke, and he's been waiting his entire life for this Yeshua to come, for the salvation of God to come, the Messiah to come, the, the promised one to come. And so he's, he's nearing the end of his life, and he's thinking the Messiah will not come, then Christ is born in Bethlehem. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 29, Simeon is holding Jesus, holding the promised one, holding the Messiah. And listen to what he says in Luke 2, verse 29, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory itself to your people, Israel. So the first three verses of Psalm 98 show us a Savior that God is going to send. And there's going to be joy in the world for God has sent his salvation in the sight of all tribes, all tongues, all people, all races, all nations. Let's look at the second, second verse of this great song. Psalm 98, look at verse 4, 5, and 6. In case you forgot it, it said, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, the, 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 the stringed instrument, the, the guitar, the harp, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So the earth itself is rejoicing for God is king and what creation is doing is giving us a cue on how to worship and how to sing. So three more things to note right here. All the earth, which includes us, should rejoice energetically before the king. There is nothing boring happening in verse four, five, and six. Verse four, shout joyfully. Verse four, Break forth, which I know gets lost a little bit in the one dimension of, of English here, but, but, but in Hebrew, that means like a dam that has been backed up, and eventually the pressure is so much that the dam breaks forth and all of the water just comes out. And in the same way, it's a picture of our hearts, like we've been perhaps holding back praise, holding back worship, holding back our song, and eventually we just can't hold it back anymore, and we just break forth. It says in verse 4, we sing for joy. Verse 5, we use instruments, lyres, and trumpets, and horns, and in case you missed it, verse 6, we shout joyfully. So here comes the zinger question from the preacher. Does this describe you? Does this describe us when we, when we gather these, these words of breaking forth and singing for joy and shouting joyfully? I personally don't think there's any room for boredom in the presence of God. 
And in surveying scriptures, there's only two volumes. Quietness and stillness are shouting loudly and joyfully before the Lord. In studying scriptures, there's a 0% volume and a 100% volume. Biblically, this is going to bother some of you, there's no 50% in the Bible. It's either quietness and stillness before the Lord or singing joyfully, breaking forth in these songs of joy. Here's what Spurgeon said, there should be no fear of us being too hardy in magnifying the God of our salvation. Here's the second thing we see. Our worship and creation's worship is strictly Godward. It's only pointed to the Lord. Twice we see it in verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. We see it also in verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord. So the direction here is a very narrow target. It's a very narrow object. The object of that worship is to the Lord. That is to say that worship, oh man, I can't believe I'm about to say this. Worship isn't about us. It is about looking to, targeting our hearts to the heart of God. Our our audience is one, and yes, we are encouraged. In fact, Colossians tells us this. We're encouraged and we're strengthened as we sing around one another, as we sing about one another, but the object and the target of our worship is the Lord and none other. Would our worship in here be any different if we believed this? Would the worship of our hearts even at home and away from the church house, would it be different if we actually believed this and kept this in mind that all worship, creation's worship is strictly to God? Third thing we see in this passage, our rejoicing is in submission to the king. If you're the New American Standard, it says there in verse 6, we're shouting joyfully. For you ESVers, it says we're making a joyful noise. It's a, it's a great Hebrew word. It's the, it's the Hebrew word ruah. And I am convinced that it's where the Marines get hoorah because it means pretty much the exact same thing. It, it is a statement of, of going into battle. It is a statement of victory. It is a statement here. The, the, the word ruah means a shout of victory. We're raising up a war cry Together, Verse 6, we make that noise, that joyful noise before the king, the Lord, the boss, the one who owns everything, and Christian, the one who owns you. You see, we can't rightfully rejoice and sing praises to a king and to a Lord if our hearts are in rebellion to him. If we're consistently pushing back on his authority in our lives, we're consistently pushing back in in, in disobedience against him. We can't sing to him as the king. We can't sing to him as the Lord if we're in rebellion towards him. This is why at Christmas we sing, Christ is the king. Oh, praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. He's the king. I tell you. Psalm 98, the last verse. Verse 7, 8, and 9. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Uh, The world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. 
For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Last three brief points. First thing we see in this last verse of this song is that creation rejoices in great expectation for the coming Christ. Creation is rejoicing here in great expectation for the coming of of Christ. Remember the angels and, and the shepherds and the faithful ones, they rejoiced at the first Christmas, but creation can't wait for the second Christmas. Well, when the king comes... To, to judge the earth. Look, look at verse 9. At the beginning of verse 9, it says he's come to judge the earth. That, that means the planet, like creation is, itself. And he's going to judge the end of verse 9, the world as in the people. So there's really kind of two judgments going on here. One is of creation itself coming to judge the earth. The second judgment is coming to, to judge the people. Or the second aspect of that judgment is coming to judge the peoples of the world. So in Christ the King comes and makes his judicial ruling about the planet, and he's going to make his final determination of the fate of this earth, he's going to remove the curse. I mean, our earth has been underneath the shadow of death ever since Genesis chapter 3. It is why the thorns have infested the ground. It is why there is labor. It's why there is sweat on on the brow of man. It's why there is, even today, we see just all around our world that the the world itself is crying out. The planet itself is crying out for redemption. So in Romans chapter 8, it reminds us that the earth itself will experience glory at the return of Christ. This is why we sing at Christmas, no more let sin or sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his glory known as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. He comes to to bless the curse as far as the curse is found on the planet. So creation is rejoicing in this great expectation for the coming of, of Christ. We rejoice at Christmas. The earth rejoices at the second Christmas and so will we. Second thing from the last verse, creation's craving for the second Christmas really should be contagious. Like the longing that the planet has, that creation has for the return of Christ really should build up in us as well. There's this desire for the second Christmas, for Christ to come again. Look at verse 7, verse 8. Look what's happening here. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, and the world, let it roar and all that dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy. Look what's happening here. Seas are roaring. All the, the wildlife, the fish in the, in the ocean, they are roaring. The world is roaring. The rivers are clapping. And Maria von Trapp was onto something because the hills are alive here with the sound of music. And this is how they're acting before Jesus comes again. Can, can you imagine the universal symphony of praise, the, the bursting musical sounds of creation, when finally the planet itself is released from the shackles of death? It should rival the way the church worships today because we've already been freed from the shackles of death. Third thing, great joy is reserved only for those who are submitted to this God, this Lord, this King. The great joy that you see all here in in Psalm 98 is reserved only for those who are submitted to this Lord, submitted to this King. This is what it says here at the very end of of verse 9, the very end of this song. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Equity. 
he will rightly come one day. Christ will come one day and will judge the world and he will judge it with equity. The Hebrew word meshar. What does it mean? Smooth evenness. He will come and it will be right. So what does this mean for, for our lives? What does this mean for you on this Christmas weekend? It means that today you should submit yourself to this Lord. You should submit yourself to this King. Today you should prepare him all the room in your heart. It means that today you should confess him as your King. Confess Christ as your Lord today. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sings. Would you stand with me please? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the joy of, of Christmas, the joy of this Christmas psalm. Father, we, we want to join in with creation and, and sing and shout for joy. Christ has come and Christ is coming again. We celebrate the first Christmas, these last several days, but God, every day we celebrate the second Christmas that is to come. It's the only thing in the Bible that has not been accomplished yet. Yet. So God, as the seas are roaring today in joyful expectation of future glory, God, we also, our hearts roar today with joy. God, as the hills are clapping, God, we also, we clap and we sing and we move, God, with music and with song. The joy that Christ has come, the joy that Christ is coming again. Father, forgive us when we've been 50 percenters. By your grace, would you teach us either to be completely still and quiet or exuberant in our worship? God, we thank you that you have come. You have sent your salvation. You have sent Yeshua, Jesus, to be the salvation of the world, the salvation of Waco, the salvation of everyone in this room who will believe. Let every heart prepare him room.